Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. I think you might be cooking a little bit in Australia, are you? Do you know, not really where I'm at, but uh, Sydney is cooking. It's 40 degrees plus and... And here we have it <laughs> in the in the sort of you know the chronological disaster stakes. We've gone from bushfires to pandemic to floods back to bushfires. I think um, a swarm of locusts is next. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> probably joking, joking aside, this is tur- these are turbulent times. It is. It's quite wearing, I, and I feel really feel that for um, for individuals. You know, it's just another thing. I think mercifully it's a reasonably small area, but it's just like nature rearing its head again to say, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. Stop messing with it. So, um, yes, interesting. Here we are having a final cold snap frost on the car today, and um, we're thinking about beautiful sunshine. So I think it's we're moving into spring. Do you still use a, a, a CD to wipe the ice off your off your windows because that shows you when I left England. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of first a cassette case and then you graduate to the CD case. Yeah, uh, we've actually now grown up and we've actually got a proper scraper, scraper. thing. But it's, oh, it, that's it's so a bit, middle-aged. I know, it is so middle-aged, I know. It's got a little glove on the outside so your little oh, middle-aged hand doesn't get say. cold. No, I see, <laughs> see the Eurythmics was my go-to CD to, to clean. Really, that was Annie, the best, best Lennox, scraper, was it? She seriously, she just smiled at me as she went through the well she can clear ice off my windscreen anytime she likes that's all i'm saying lovely okay so um before we get even more inappropriate um let us move into this episode which um is all about fit we've had a listener question Stuart dl who was actually a guest on the show a couple of seasons ago wrote in to ask about fit and we'll hear that question in a few minutes but it reminded me of a of my last interview joining Johnson & Johnson, actually, and it was a really nice company, but it was orthopedics, and surgeons in orthopedics are, you know, used to be very rugby-playing types, and so orthopedics companies were sort of quite laddie, um, sort of rugby-playing, really sort of collegiate sort of places, and I was in my final interview, big panel of people, which I now realise was very homogeneous, I have to say, but the but the sort of the final question was so Dan, you know you've got all these A levels you've got this engineering degree you know basically are you going to be too bookish to come down the pub with us and have a good time and so I know it's hilarious to think about me now I mean I, I, yeah anyway um but um they said so you know for example what great what degree what what did you get in your degree and I said well. I've got good news for you. I've got a third. And they would go, oh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> and a and ripple literally, of applause when across If I'd said the, I got a banner. first, there was no way I'd have got that job. But the third just got me in. And, and that was the fit question. That was, you know, I didn't go to university to just study and get my head down. I'd obviously had a good time. Actually, to be honest, I was just not clever enough, but they it was didn't know It a terrible that. exam. So, exactly, exactly. They didn't know. So um, anyway, it made me think of this. This is this fit question made me think of that. So um, today we've invited Marsha Ramroot back on the show, who, who gave us a fantastic rundown on inclusion in the last season, just to ask her this question about fit. So let us whiz over and um, hear the question and uh, have another chat with Marsha. 
Hello, Marsha, again, and welcome back to the show. It's lovely to have you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for asking me. I must have done something right last time. <laughs> you must have done. You must have done. No, definitely, definitely. So Stuart wrote to us, and if you have a question for us, you can just email us at wenotmepod at gmail.com. But what Stuart said was this, and this is our question for you, Marsha, as well. So, hey, Dan and Pia, loving the shows. I wonder if you could cover the topic of fit. In my work as a coach, I'm encountering numerous issues around a lack of good fit between businesses and new recruits. Are we getting worse at getting this right? Is the more complex and changing world making it harder to get the right fit between business and candidate? And is the old recruitment model no longer fit for purpose? Instead of focusing on candidate experience and skills, do we need to be focusing more on values and what a candidate looks for? And equally, how can a candidate do a better job of evaluating their values truly fit with a potential employer. Finally, expected values of autonomy seems to be a pinch point in many cases. Senior people are expecting more autonomy that is actually given. I'd love to hear you cover this sometime. So here we are covering it. So they are, Marshall. I think there's a couple of points in there. There's that sort of top end of town. Um, and then that second one about autonomy. Maybe we could do that sort of more general question first. What what springs to mind? For well, you? alarm bells are going, wee, wee, wee. <laughs> uh, because actually, uh, when when we hear the term um, culture fit, this is completely and utterly soaked. It's all the way permeated through with bias. Uh, so we need to, a uh, short answer is we need to stop thinking about culture fit and start thinking about culture add. And ultimately, what this comes down to is uh, when we talk about culture fit, that is usually hiring people that will somehow, you know, automatically, magically fit into a company's culture. And, and you know, you, you talk about cohesive teams and teams that work all the time. And that, you know, works in theory. But what you're really doing then is hiring uh, for a homogenous team. I think we, we recognise that teams that are uh, effective, if they're diverse, are ones that are also inclusive. So you have to create a culture of inclusion that requires lots of different ways of doing things, backgrounds, perspectives, values. And so the, the problem with hiring for culture fit is that you end up hiring the same kind of person over and over again and that's fine if you want to do that that's fine go ahead and have your homogenous team over there and you will be very effective and you will get stuff done but you're in danger of groupthink you're in danger of not innovating you're in danger of not actually moving forward with the world and you'll fall behind essentially and no good business wants to fall behind so the better thing to do, and all the research shows that um, having a diverse and inclusive culture, diverse team plus an inclusive culture, will be far better. So um, when you're hiring for culture fit, things like confirmation bias, affinity bias, all those biases about, well, this feels comfortable to me. I would, I'll happily go to the pub. With, you might have heard that one. I'll happily go to the pub with this person. All of those things play out when you're talking about culture fit. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, actually, it did remind me, Marsha, when you when we talked last time, I have actually had several conversations since we talked, and I've appeared incredibly intelligent just by repeating what you said, uh, which was about these three grades of team, which was the best team is a diversive, inclusive team. The second best team is a, is a homogenous team. But the worst team is, an, is a diverse, non-inclusive team. So it, this question reminded me of that, that if you... Is that right? If you if you hire for if you hire without fit but don't do anything to be inclusive, you you you're yeah, screwed. absolutely screwed. And not only are you absolutely screwed, uh, but that person that you brought in, like all with all that hope, and they come in and think, yes, well, you know, when you start a new job, it's all about oh, you know, it's that wonderful honeymoon period that you have where you know that person feels welcomed and you know everyone enjoys having a new person all that novelty of having a new person in the team then they start to raise the issues and bring their different perspectives and they start to point out all the ways things can be done differently and they push for accountability and that's when things start to go wrong, not just for the team, but for that individual as well. Especially if it really that individual is an individual in that they're just that one person that has been brought in to answer the change that you want to bring about. Well, it doesn't quite work like that. And I might have um, said this previously, the culture of any organisation is shaped by the worst behaviours leaders are willing to tolerate. Now, that's from a, a book called School Culture Rewired by Gruner and Whitaker. So if we're talking about culture fit and culture uh, ad, well, if you're going for culture ad, but then you're not willing to embrace the new, different perspectives, uh, you could create poor cultures amongst the team, people getting ostracised, uh, treated badly, and so on. And so uh, what you really need to do is, uh, as leaders in an organisation which are shaping the culture, is then to demonstrate the best behaviours. So that I, I believe if the culture of any organisation is shaped by the worst behaviours leaders are willing to tolerate, then uh, the culture of any organisation can be shaped by the best behaviours leaders are willing to demonstrate. And those best behaviours, of course, I always talk about cultural intelligence, which is the capability to work and relate effectively across difference. That is what you need. If you want, if you want to improve the culture of your organisation, it's not about fit, it's about add, but then making sure that that culture is fit for anyone coming in to then, you know, raise their concerns and to shape that difference that you want because just and the other thing to bear in mind of course is just because someone might look different doesn't mean they're going to think differently as well so there are lots of different things to think about but um yeah that's just to throw some oil on the fire yeah definitely yeah, go, yeah i think well I, I really like lots of oil that's great and i think too the other thing is we should I, mean, I think people listening to this will potentially be managers who are hiring who are thinking about their teams um, and are in that very real position. And what's actually quite provoking about what you talk about is it's our bias as that team leader, as that manager, that shapes the whole thing. You are part of the system. So if you've got a bias towards what makes you feel comfortable by having the type of person in 
And that may not be diverse. You're not, you're not embracing diversity. You're just doing what's comfortable and works for you. It, you have to be quite brave to, to say, do you know what? I, what's going to be the best thing here and how are we going to do this rather than what's going to make my life easier? And I'm not sure that we actually even are aware that that's the choice. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of that is down to culture being quite hard to define sometimes. You know, when we, we, when we talk about organisational culture, it's this vague thing, what, you know, the way we do things around here. And there's this um, great graphic that I tend to use in my presentations about the, the um, organisational culture iceberg. And above the water, you've got the things that the, the way we say we get things done. So, you know, those policies, those procedures, the values that are up on the website. Uh, it's all very clear. It's all very obvious the way that our culture is, is put together. But below the surface is the way we really get things done. So those unwritten rules, the assumptions, you know, those, those shared perspectives, shared stories. And um, you can't always, you know, define that clearly. And so uh, one of the things that, you know, cultural intelligence does, it, it helps us describe some of those things below the water and really importantly, encourages us to put in procedures to mitigate the bias that could come out of those perceptions and assumptions and stories and so on, uh, because it really is about that clarity. So uh, part of the question was, um, you know, should we be moving towards looking at hiring people for their values? Well, again, because um, <laughs> one of the things is that when you... Potentially not. Yeah, I think essentially, you know, values, they're, they're, they're very personal and people can and, and bring bring their values and, and so on to work and, and, and that's very useful. But ultimately, we need to have very clear procedures around uh, describing skills, describing abilities, describing experience, and capability as well. So the, the ability to improve and to work and transfer skills rather than necessarily, you know, values in something that, that again, is very subjective, whether someone's values are going to fit into an organisation or not. So it's all about making it as objective as possible. This is the role. These are the things that we need someone to do in that role. Can you do those things? great okay now you are this person who comes with all these additional things your background your perceptions your values your beliefs all these things that make us human this human now is going to be working amongst all these other humans how do we ensure that not only is everyone getting their their jobs done but of course we get them done more effectively if, if we're able to respect each other and work politely with each other and and even have a laugh we know that productivity is good that is that is something different that we don't recruit for we, we recruit around those those objective things but there's something wider piece of HR which is about that culture and how do you create that? It's through the leadership, it's through having cultural intelligence. It's about making sure that the values of an organization and the values of an individual can come together to create a third way that will drive results 
that's an optimal way where everybody has to be culturally intelligent, not just the organisation, but individuals coming in as well. So if we think about Stuart talked quite a bit about the recruiting process, what else can people, I was thinking about these mitigating processes, what else can organisations do to really be aware and do something? Like <laughs> There's so much. I mean, one of the things is that frequently, bizarrely actually, when we hire uh, a lot of recruitment systems, we try to get it over and done with as, as quickly as possible. Cost and convenience, number one thing we need to think about when we're hiring, which is bizarre only because it's one of the most expensive things you can do long term is to to hire someone, then you pay them and things work or they don't work. And if they don't work, then you're still paying them and you're trying to figure out a way to work together and it's causing other problems. So actually, if we were to invest properly, not only money, but time into doing these and having these processes really clearly set out, um, then it would save organisations in the long term because, of course, then going back to market because people leave or because you have to fire them or because you have to go through some grievance process. They are all of these things. Like, why wouldn't you want to try to avoid them in the first place, right? So there's a really great book. Actually, I've got it here. It's uh, it's called Racism at Work. Racism at Work, a how-to guide. <laughs> Yes, that's what it's worth. It's the danger of indifference. And it's written by a guy called uh, Bina Kandela. He's a business psychologist. And he talks about how do we, you know, recruit well. And um, the fact that actually we tend to have this uh, priority where the first thing we think about is cost and convenience, when actually what we really should be thinking about is the skills and abilities. So when we talk about discrimination in this respect, it's actually in the real sense of recognition and understanding of the difference between one thing and another. You know, we need to clearly be clear as to what we're looking for in a role and then look at the, you know, the validity and the reliability and the robustness of the process itself, whether it's legal and fair, then looking at convenience and practicality, cost, development time, uh, getting feedback from applicants. And then when all of the process is over, evaluating it to make sure that actually is there any way we could have improved it? You know, is there anything that we could have done differently? Uh, but what we tend to do is focus on cost, convenience, information, throw it out there, see who comes back to us, best fit for organisation. You know, we don't want to break the law, you know, it's, and then things just get, you know, and then we don't even bother to evaluate or ask applicants for their feedback. So um, there is a completely different way of, of, of looking at how, how we do these things. But with the first thing really being, how do we fulfill the capabilities, abilities, skills and experience that we need for this role? And the human attached to all of that is a different piece of work. I think we've all been in that situation where we've, we've thought of an imaginary hire that will come in like a like sort of act of wizardry and you know and cast their spell across the team that is not functioning in the way that you would like them to or needs a little extra dose of something in order to achieve that this person were both incredibly 
sort of innovative and driving forward, doing something different while also being very good at working with the team and bringing everyone around them. They have these mythical skills. Oh, that, well, you just described me there, Dan. Yeah, I knew there was. I knew I was thinking of someone. <laughs> and again, that's that bit sort of um, our, our bias is we want that person to fix it. And the team doesn't really necessarily want to be fixed. So I think from a team perspective, we've often not had the conversation as a team to take ownership of what's going on, to really understand it and to to work together to it. And we bring somebody in as the fixer and nobody likes that. Nobody likes that feeling of that person. And I mean, there are some professional individuals who make a career out of being these fixers and they are deposited as, as catalysts or detonators into teams and organizations. So that's, but for, for most of us, there's a human need to be part of something for both the team themselves to feel part of something together and the person being in it. I mean, I, I, I agree to, with you to some extent there, Pia, but I will also challenge you, if I may. <laughs> 100%. Uh, there, there are people who, who, who want to fit into a team when they, when they come along and, and go into work and want to feel like they, you know, they're part of something. But there are also people who are quite happy to come into work and to do their work and be productive and be perfectly pleasant and work, you know, uh, professionally with with everyone, and then um, and then go home. And um, there are those in teams who find that very disconcerting because they think they should be part of this group and be part of the gang and part of the dare I say it and you know should never ever be used in business context family. And so uh, this is where I kind of, again, if I may do my little alarm klaxon sound. um, (laughs) That's three. (laughs) That's that's all I'm allowed. (laughs) There is uh, uh, this idea of belonging. You know, we need to to belong somehow. And this idea of culture fit is about creating belonging. Well, this is where I'm, I'm very, very worried when people talk about belonging. I think we should be dropping the belonging word from the conversation um, because, you know, culture fit, it's all wrapped up in this idea, isn't it? Can you, can you belong? Now, um, just to ha- reach up again to my bookshelf, <laughs> this book's called Reinventing Organisations. It's um, been translated from French, um, from Frederick Laloux. And he raises a caution that the emphasis on belonging to an organisation suggests that a whole person's life should revolve around work socially, financially, environmentally, uh, meaning an individual is psychologically trapped within the workplace. You know, you lose your job, you lose your life. And um, there's some organisations that made belonging and that culture fit so essential. They've designed it so that people don't ever need to go home. You know, those play spaces, kitchens, like even massages at your desk. And, um, you know, that's great. But you expend all your energy then emotional, social in work. And that, that's going to result in burnout, actually. So I think that if organisations are framing their ethos around belonging, I think that isn't really for an organisation to decide. I think it's up to an individual whether they want to belong at work or not. Because, again, the word belonging, it comes with that sense of ownership too. 
Like, oh, this pen, it belongs to me. In relationships, you know, we belong together or systems, they, they belong in jail. But I think really, really disturbing in an organisational context is this historical connection to slavery, where the enslaved individuals belonged to their masters. So I think we have to be really, really careful when we talk about belonging in organisational settings and say, no, what we want to do is create a culture of inclusion where if you want to belong at work, you can. If you don't, that's fine. We value you because you are going to bring this role and you're going to fulfill the skills, abilities, capabilities and experience we need. And then as humans together, we're going to work together well to create an organisation that is driven by results. That's really powerful, Marsha. The penny has finally dropped. You've probably talked about this before, but saying you should belong is a bias, isn't it? It, that I'm going to exclude you if you don't want to belong and I might not want to. I think that's um, that's that's powerful stuff. You're allowed another klaxon noise at some oh, point. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you bonus, <laughs> bonus, bonus card, bonus klaxon, klaxon for that excellent point. Um, Marcia, I'm going to ask a really naive question now. I'm sure people listening to the show might be thinking, yeah, okay, that sounds all great, but I'm working with someone and that guy is a pain in the ass. I, I'm trying to be diverse. I'm trying to listen to what he has to say. But honestly, he's just what my mother-in-law would call awkward squad. Yeah, look, sometimes differences aren't always down to culture. Sometimes they're down to personality. And, uh, you know, if someone's being an obed, you know, there's no, no amount of cultural intelligence is going to help you. <laughs> um, <laughs> all- well, thank you. We should just end right there. <laughs> <laughs> so really importantly um know how to take care of yourself when you're having to deal with these individuals and it's about stepping away when you need to step away if you can't step away you have to deal with these individuals or you have to go through the whole you know having um those difficult conversations you know describe their behavior um outline the impact talk about how it's made you feel and, and, and how you want things done differently in future and just go through those processes and, and the, the internal HR processes if this person's being particularly difficult, if you can't deal with things in an objective way. Um, if there is bias at play, again, you know, all, all you can all you can do is do what you can do, control what you can control and behave in a way that is right for you and always aware that I feel like I want to reach across and get another book at the moment I, I think did I did I not do this did I did I do that Al Capone last time oh you did you did feel feel free to brush Sh- should I brush though? you yeah. up on Al Capone again so uh this is from Dale Carnegie how to win friends and influence people and uh it was written in 1936 so the language is very gendered but also because it was written in 1936 uh Dale Carnegie's frame of reference is Al Capone the American gangster And he talks about, when you talk about, well, how do you deal with difficult people or so on? This is what he says about it. He says, suppose you had Al Capone's environment and experiences. You will then be precisely what he was and where he was. For it is those things and only those things that made him what he was. You deserve very little credit for being what you are. And remember, the people who come to you irritated, bigoted, unreasoning, deserve very little discredit for being what they are feel sorry for the poor devils pity them sympathize with them say to yourself 
there but for the grace of God go I. I too could be a knobhead. Exactly. Just to, just to summarize um, in a slightly prosaic way. Um, one, thank you for taking us back that much. It's, it's, it's a profound truth. Now I'm going to just, uh, just ask you just in the final few minutes, just uh, there was a second part to Stuart's question, which was about that he's observed the demand for the, the desire for autonomy, let's put it that way, versus the autonomy that's given. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, especially when it comes to leadership and executives, um, there is a fallacy that, as you, as uh, I was saying before, that as you climb up that greasy pole to leadership and uh, you, um, you know, somehow get, get into get in the room, you finally got in the room and you think that you're going to be freer to do as you wish and to lead as you can. But you're always accountable to someone, especially you know, the money. So uh, especially if you're working for an organisation where the money is coming from a particular source or, you know, you're, you've got a board of directors, uh, sh- uh, shareholders, you know, in those circumstances, you know, you're accountable to the money. You're working for a charity or not-for-profit. You're, you know, you've got your fundraisers and also, you know, the the, the outcomes of, of the organisation. Where are you going to to to, to put your efforts there's always someone you're accountable to unless like me you're a sole trader <laughs> you can do what the hell you want <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i think there is a sense that you do you do have accountabilities and it's not about at that point it's not necessarily about the freedom it's about how you lead others to be their best and uh, to to fulfil the, the the organisational values and uh, outcomes and services and products, so it's probably a, an opportunity to reframe what people really think should happen when they get into those positions. I certainly think that um, we have a misguided view that um, senior leaders have a broader ability to make more decisions, where in actual fact it's more complex at the top. So there's a there's a range of complexity, both strategic and political, that impede senior leaders' decision. And you don't know it until you get to it. And I, I think sometimes there's a little bit sort of like how you go through the Earth's atmosphere. When you're going up that greasy pole and you're and you're in more a team leader, more functional role, you have to in order to get through to that executive level, this that that's Yes, you nearly burn up at that point where you've got these perceptions that you think it's going to, woohoo, I'm going to become a leader. It's going to be much simpler. And it's so not. It's much more complex. You've got much greater number of things to consider when you're making decisions. Your bottom is on the line for those decisions. And you've got compliance breathing down your neck in a number of different things. So it's sort of a little bit like, ooh a big brush of reality. And quite often some people, to continue another analogy, they pull the ripcord and they get out of the corporate world at that point because it's it's not what they thought it was. But there's a bit where I think there's a bit of learning to be done about how to manage it, in my humble view. Yeah, I think that autonomy idea is is naive, dare I say it. And, and I guess, Marge, it's I guess something else that needs a mitigating process around it and and I, I there is that piece isn't there when you're recruiting the company's showing its best face look we're amazing look how fantastic we are and the other the person is saying yes i am faultless and and amazing and they, and they sort of 
they sort of somehow get married and then, oh, oh, you know, like we were talking about earlier, Pete, you can't fill a dishwasher properly or worse. You know, it's sort of, it. it's actually worth saying, hold on, it's sort of a little bit of a prenup to say, look, you want autonomy, you want to be bold. Let me talk about, the mitigating process, I guess, is let's, let's, dis- let's talk about genuinely how much autonomy you're going to have and what your what is going to contain you honestly and see if that's something that still you're still interested in rather than saying, Oh, you're going to have, yeah, do you want it? Just come in here and change everything. Uh, I guess it sounds like a sort of bit of realism during recruitment would, wouldn't go amiss here. Yeah. I would absolutely agree with that. Totally. You're both right. <laughs> well, that's unusual. I think we better, we better end it there then. <laughs> Dan's looking really confused. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you said I was right. <laughs> no, sorry, I missed all that because Siri suddenly decided to talk to me. So the sound went off while Siri talked to me about something. Siri was just ringing the recruiter, Dan. For goodness <laughs> sake. I'm sorry, I feel I've, I've not only missed a great moment because I could see from the expression on her face that it was awesome, but I feel like I actually might have done something right. Can I... <laughs> <laughs> it's like a classic moment. It's never happened before, and bloody Siri was. You were right, it. and you so, missed it. It's probably Stuart trying to get into the call. <laughs> Sorry, well, ask another question. Anyway, so yes, brilliant, brilliant point to close. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, thank you, me, for being right about something. I've no idea what it was, um, but more, more to the point, Marsha. Thank you for joining us and sharing your wisdom and wit. And uh, you have a klaxon noise in in the bag for next time. So um, all is well. Thank you. I'll keep hold of that one. Well, I love the fact that after all of Marsha's uh, research and practice in this area, her quote of, if someone's a knobhead, no <laughs> amount of cultural intelligence is going to help you, that made me chuckle. And I'm not quite sure how you get defined uh, as the said knobhead, but I think there is a bit where there are certain things that you do that just rule you out of the diversity index just by the very nature of I think so. It's interesting. I think that's probably another dimension, yeah. But I loved how she talked about the difference between culture fit and culture ad and how culture fit is much more about your own bias. You're fitting into what I perceive to be the right, which is your panel. So that there they were, the, the, the rugby boys, looking for, you know, they didn't want to, a dull academic they wanted something lively and fun so and i don't know quite how a third in a degree equates to that but they made an assumption and it was actually weirdly that assumption that i was out drinking with the lads no i i i, I just couldn't do the engineering very well but anyway it got me through it got me through but yeah and I've, that was a fascinating point for me about on the same in the same vein about belonging there's a lot of talk on among the linkedin arati about you know diversity is being invited to the dance inclusion is being allowed to i can't remember what the whole thing is but then belonging is the is the ultimate stage so uh, that's quite a contentious view uh, an unusual view that marcia had but it really made sense to me that not everyone wants to belong in that sense and that itself believing that everyone should belong is a bias and it and it can it weirdly exclude people i thought that was sort of something i had to wrap my head around yeah and i think the this culture ad piece is a really great approach rather than do you fit will you add the thing is though that, that i've realized talking to marsha is you then have to do sort of 
culture inclusion work with the team so that before this poor person comes in, you have to say, you know, how are we going to be inclusive about this person? And of course, that is going to benefit for the, t- the team as a whole rather than you have to comply, actually. How can we be a bit more inclusive? And even people who are currently in the team, I feel, are going to benefit from that. I agree. It's much more open and it's, it doesn't have to like a fixed dynamic that everybody is desperately trying to fit into. It's more open. And the ad side of it is, is that actually the, the dynamic might morph slightly and that's okay. And that you're actually celebrating the value of each individual, not a set of values that define, that was also another point. They can, they can become quite rigid values to, to the point where they can exclude. And then we get on our high horse about them. So that's another one that's quite interesting. It's quite nuanced, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. It was a, it was a great question from Stuart and, and just throws up a lot of things. I was, it, it also reminded me, I was working with a team in the construction industry about five years ago. We did a sort of psychometric test on them and they were all sitting in one quadrant except for the poor HR woman um, who was sitting in another one. And they were all these sort of blue analytical types and they talked themselves around to the fact that that's good, that they should all be that have the same thinking, but very strong on fit. But of course, what we've learned from Marsha is that they are they can do fine, actually, as she said. You go over there and be a homogeneous team this poor woman needs to leave probably because she wasn't being welcomed. But, you know, go if you want to do that, but you're you're going to be a second-rate team. What you need to do is if, if you want to be really exceptional, add to your culture and be inclusive. And I didn't really have a great answer at the time for them because, except to try to extol the virtues of inclusion. But actually what you can say is, yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be f- you will be fine as you are, but not as good as you could be. The words you wished you'd had as a, as a consultant. I know, I know. Uh, but um, yes, we learn along the way, don't we? Which is a wonderful thing and what We Not Me is all about. But thank you, Stuart, for that great question. If anyone else has some, uh, some questions, they can send them our way. But that is it for this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the love and recommend it to your friends. And if you'd like to contribute to the show like Stuart did, just email us at wenotmepod at gmail.com. We Not Me is produced by Mark Stedman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.